Good evening. Welcome to our Friday lecture series at the Middle East Center. The theme this term is environment. My name is Walter Armbrust. I'm one of the fellows of the Middle East Center. And our speaker this evening is Dr. Manal Shahabi. She's an applied economist with expertise in economic energy, resource sustainability, and policymaking in resource-dependent economies, focusing on the Middle East and the Gulf regions. Her work involves economy-wide modeling and political economy, and she uses these methods to contribute to scholarship on economic and energy diversification and policy alternatives in Gulf hydrocarbon economies following the energy transition and oil price volatility. Dr. Shabby is a frequent presence in media as a commentator or discussant on Gulf energy issues. She's been on Sky News Arabic, El Arabiya TV, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Radio Oman, and numerous podcasts. And she's also been interviewed and cited in Time Magazine, Al Jazeera, El Qabas Newspaper, and El Boaba. She's a senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, and currently also an academic visitor at St. Anthony's a status which dramatically understates her lively presence at our events over the past few years, a level of participation that I must say goes far beyond the economies and energy politics of Gulf states. In her most recent academic writing, Dr. Shahabi has addressed such topics as the long-term impact of COVID on the economies of oil producing states, and in forthcoming articles, the potential impact of hydrogen production in the Gulf, including both blue hydrogen and green hydrogen, and I'll leave it to her to explain the difference between them. I gather there's also gray, pink, and yellow hydrogen. And I mentioned hydrogen because it's a good segue to tonight's lecture, which examines both energy diversification in the Gulf and the state of the environment in the region. I should also mention that she is going to be going to the COP26 conference next week. So she's on the ground floor, the ground zero of environmental issues of our times. The title of her lecture is Environment Discounted, Energy and Economic Diversification Plans in the Gulf. And I should mention that as usual, you should use the Q&A function of Zoom to send us questions. If you ask to remain anonymous, then we won't reveal your name. Otherwise, we'll reveal the names of the speakers as we ask the questions. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Dr. Manal Shahabi. Many thanks for this very kind introduction, and I'm delighted to be here with you today, and also very happy that the theme of the webinar series this term is on the environment, so that it won't be discounted as kind of the title is of my presentation. So I'm just going to go ahead and share my screen with everyone now. So for today's talk, as Professor Walter had said in the introduction, the, the title is Environment Discounted, Energy and Economic Diversification Plans in the Gulf. And in this talk, it's based on a paper that I'm uh, working on at the moment, but a lot of the background is also really the culmination of research that I've been involved in for uh, years now as part of this larger project on uh, sustainability both energy and economic and resources in hydrocarbon economies in the Gulf. And I think I should probably say that it was really, when I chose the date today to speak, I was completely not paying attention to the fact that COP will be taking place this week. So the timing is completely serendipitous uh, here today. And just to kind of go into a little bit of the scope of what today's talk will be, 
When we think Gulf states, everybody thinks oil and gas exporters, which is true. But for purposes of my talk today, I want to exclude Iraq and Iran because for obvious reasons, Iraq has had political instability lately, which directly affects its economy. And Iran, of course, its sanctions. So very heavy uh, emphasis or, or uh, impact of exogenous variables. So I'm excluding them for purposes of this talk. And I'm focusing mostly on uh, countries that are members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, Bahrain, Kuwait, uh, Oman, uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE. And just for everyone's kind of, I think, a reference point to think of how relevant these countries are, aside from them being, you know, large oil and gas producers and consumers, they also have 1% of the world population, but produce a significant portion, 25% of global oil exports and or global oil production and 11% of natural gas. And they also have very large potential for producing renewable energy, which also be uh, leading if they, uh, I guess, choose to go that direction. I also want to give you a bit, basically, what my talk today, the point of my talk will be. So if we look at the transitioning away from fossil fuels that's been kind of sweeping a lot of economies in the world, the main point of that or the drive of that have been has been protecting the environment, reducing climate change, and mitigating effects of global warming on the, on, on the climate. But I'm arguing today that actually this is different in the Gulf. Specifically, if you look at the role of the environment and energy and economic development plans in the Gulf, both in terms of the visions, but also the recent climate commitments, I'm arguing that the role of environment has been limited because it has not been, unlike other countries, it hasn't been the main motivator for the change, but rather the motivator has been really more protecting energy exports and also protecting a leading role in the global energy market and the global economy in general. Having said that, though, and despite numerous improvements on the environment front in the Gulf states, really maximizing economic and energy sustainability requires putting the environment as a central point in policymaking. So this is pretty much the point of my talk. And I wanted to give this to you ahead uh, from the go because I want to take you kind of to give you a bit of the background, but also the evidence of the arguments that I'm making. I want to take you through a bit of a journey, so to speak, with me on covering a bit of the background for the energy and economic diversification of the Gulf and where the environment stands. Then I'll delve into a little bit on the visions, the economic development plans more recent development, particularly on the climate, and then I'll conclude with how the environment has been discounted. And I also must say that for time limitations, this will not be conclusive. I'll be picking examples, and I apologize in advance if a country that one, uh, someone is interested in might not be discussed in detail, but I'm more than happy to take it in a Q&A. Okay, so let me just give you a bit of a background on the need for economic and energy diversification. So I've mentioned that oil and gas, and I think this is probably very well known to everyone, all states are over-dependent on hydrocarbons for oil and gas. And what I mean by over-dependent, there's different ways to define that. If you just look at the percentage of natural resource rents of GDP, tend on average to be higher than the rest of the world, including some of the other states that export uh, oil and gas, such as Russia. And I'm going to go ahead and just use a laser pointer here. So this uh, line here in purple, for example, is Kuwait, and then you have Libya and Iraq in yellow, Iran, while, for example, Russia and even Venezuela, which are both hydrocarbon exporters, tend to have lower share of GDP. And in addition, that being part of GDP, or what I show, show here in the slide as part of the value add, 
the main overdependence of hydrocarbons is not just in GDP, but really its share of exports. So these states tend to have over 80% of their exports coming from exports of oil or gas, and they're also the majority of their government revenue. And even, for example, in for example, which only has 32% of its GDP coming from oil, 85 to 90% of exports and government revenue come from hydrocarbon sectors. So what that means is there is a huge reliance of uh, the economy uh, on oil, of course, or oil and gas. Also, all of the economy really shifts with oil and gas movements, uh, oil and gas movements and performance of the oil and gas industry. And uh, for a quick example for here, uh, some examples from Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, if you look at the red line here, which is movements of oil price, uh, while the GDP moves in, in the green line with the blue lines of production, they pretty much move consistently with oil price. And the same if we look at net foreign assets from Saudi Arabia, but also if we do uh, other economic indicators. Part of the problem in this is that the fact that oil and gas are obviously very volatile, they move quite a lot. And what that means is that the economy becomes exposed to boom and busts very quickly. This problem obviously isn't new, but it became really problematic, and uh, I guess uh, for Gulf states, particularly in 2014, mid-2014, when the oil price collapsed from over 130 or so by, uh, you know, in some instances it was $30 uh, per barrel, and that all of a sudden kind of created or ramped, increased the urgency really for Gulf states to think about role of oil and gas in the economy and to really advance, at least verbally, advance projects for uh, diversifying their economy so that they're less reliant on exports of oil and gas and less reliant on this volatile source, which makes their economies very volatile. And another instance where it was also very volatile was last year after the COVID pandemic when prices also collapsed. Um, and the, the gray line here is the volatility index, so it's, it's quite high. Now, as a response to this, even though this, as I mentioned, this overdependence is not new, uh, it really was after the oil price collapse in 2014 that a policy, a, a more of a significant policy shift took place in the Gulf, uh, one of which included reducing or reforming energy subsidies, which prior to that were some of the highest in the world. You see, for example, Iran and Kuwait, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, they had some of the highest subsidization rate of energy domestically. Uh, and this obviously was uh, reformed at various levels of success between 2015 and 2016. But then another also policy uh, response was to really advance these economic and development plans in the forms of visions. I should say these are not new. Like many states, Gulf states have also had, you know, five or 10 year development plans and different visions. The change that happened after 2014 was really quite significant because the, the new visions, um, which you know, put you give you really a, a, an idea of what the country would look like at a certain point in the future, 2030 to 2040 usually. It really represented kind of like a transformation of the economy away from oil and gas into economies that have more diversified sectors economies that have high renewables, but also the role of the private sector and employment is higher and R&D are higher. So it's really almost like a complete change from the previous economic uh, structure, so to speak. And even in the case of Kuwait, for example, they even call it New Kuwait 2035. So that just gives you an idea of the strengths or, or the emphasis on the transforming the economy in those visions. And this will be one of the things that I'll discuss briefly in a few minutes. Now, why does this 
persistence or this urgency for economic diversification persist. Um, of course, there's the problem of the collapse of the oil price, which had significant fiscal uh, implications. And then there's also another important challenge, which is the energy energy transition, which basically means global effort or attempt to consume less fossil fuels and hydrocarbons and go towards more clean energy sources, such as hydrogen, which was mentioned in the beginning, but also renewables, etc. And there are different estimates of what size of uh, or what demand really will be for different energy sources in the future. Different estimates do suggest more conservative, but also more uh, optimistic, suggests that oil and gas demand will be significantly lower, including, uh, this is uh, information from the IEA and the World Energy Outlook last year, as well as this year, all suggesting that there is a continuous movement away from fossil fuels toward clean energy alternatives. So this basically means a big effect on the main source of, uh, or the main en- engine of uh, Gulf economies. This has been used as the main challenge, but Actually, there's other main challenges that I think are also really uh, stressing the availability of oil and gas exports, one of which is the fact that uh, domestic consumption of oil and gas uh, is also rising at a rate that is significantly higher than the growth in production, which is, you see the growth in production in orange, while the blue is the um, growth in domestic energy demand. So then that means that less availability of hydrocarbon resources for exports. And then the third challenge also is the fact that we expect consistent low oil prices in the future. Um, these states are welfare-based states, which means they have very generous uh, welfare distributive measures by way of subsidies and other assistance and very, uh, here, uh, also very high uh, public sector that employs a lot of the citizens and that has a very big public wage bill then. So what that means is these states require high price of oil just to balance their budget. And the the oil, the expected oil price is expected to be lower than the price required to balance the budget. So then it's really, uh, there is a continuous need and an urgency to uh, diversify the economy and have other sources of income. And the diversification, if you remember from my earlier slide, there is existing non-oil sector in GDP. So that's not really the emphasis that these states require. What they require is a diversification of the export source. So other export uh, sources that can generate sufficient revenue that the governments and the budgets require. And part of the reason that I am sharing the slide here, because I think we need to kind of start, We often we think of just energy transition and the effect of oil price and global um, GCC economies, but we need to also consider how much of the existing oil and gas sectors is also consumed locally, how that affects the local energy portfolio, the effect of that on the environment, which as well, um, how that goes back to how much oil and gas are available for exports, because the revenue of that then goes into funding social development and labor and even environmental infrastructure or even economic diversification projects. So there is a very direct link that we cannot ignore between what happens domestically, how it affects the environment, and of course, what happens internationally. Okay, so now this is probably a nice segue to take you a little bit before describing the discounted role of the environment in the economic and energy development plans. I just want to give you a very brief idea of the state of the environment in the Gulf. And there's a lot of literature on this. This is not anything that I've come up with. But it kind of helps contextualize the challenges that we're looking at here when it comes to the environment. Firstly, I assume everyone knows this is the Gulf area, which I'm highlighting here. 
But if you look at this graph, this is about basically how arid lands can be. The area of the Gulf as other parts of the Middle East region are also quite arid. And there's obviously a lot of desertification with it as well. And this is an environmental challenge uh, to begin with. Another challenge, this in itself is not an environmental challenge, but it's basically the high uh, per capita consumption of energy in Gulf states. I did mention they're extremely abundant in, in, uh, in hydrocarbon resources, but they also have had historically very generous subsidies with water desalination, electricity being provided almost for free, and also other gas sources, I should say. So what that basically meant is these the lighter the color in the, in the map basically means a higher capita energy or a kilogram of oil equivalent, basically. And you see that they have some of the highest per capita usage of energy uh, domestically. And the reason that matters is because it contributed to some of the highest emissions per capita, as well as one of the highest emissions level per GDP. And this is data from the World Bank. It says 2014, but the data varies. Unfortunately, when it comes to a lot of developing states, including the Gulf, often there is a lag in the availability of data. Uh, the, the trends have uh, continued to be the same, with Qatar, for example, being the highest emitter uh, of emissions of, of carbon, CO2, carbon dioxide emissions globally. And then the Gulf states are just as high, Kuwait here, uh, Bahrain, UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia being eight. And these are pretty much more than double, for example, if you look at Qatar, more than double the, the value of uh, per capita emissions in the United States. Now, if we look at overall emissions per country, I have to say that the Gulf states are not high emitters compared to other states. You know, the world's largest emitters are China and India and the US, EU, Australia, et cetera. Gulf states are not. They are, as I mentioned, higher of the highest per capita emitters. If we look at their overall emissions, we see that emissions come mostly from the use of energy, which has been, as I mentioned, significantly subsidized over time. And then second, the second source is the transport system. And you know, if, we, if anyone had gone to the Gulf, you will see that the lifestyle so kind of supports this. For example, you have multiple cars in a household, houses that have air conditioning that, because obviously there's, oh, it's, it's a hot climate, air conditioning that runs sometimes all the time, and other very subsidized, almost free energy that is uh, consumed or electricity consumed by different sectors as well. So from the consumer perspective, from the industrial perspective, energy are high and that contributed to high emissions. But these, the reason I want to share this with you, because then this gives us an idea of the scope of where emission reduction could be, which then would be kind of like the target, so to speak, in the energy diversification and economic diversification plans that would also be pro-environment. And I'm not going to go into this next graph here, but this is an example of details of greenhouse gas emissions from Kuwait. And they're not just by carbon, but they're, you know, they're methane and other emissions as well. So there's levels of detail at, at that level for the different countries. Now, because, as I mentioned, there's been high consumption and high emissions that also contributed to high pollution. And that also contributes to uh, global, the low air quality compared with the rest of the world. And this is data from the World Health Organization, where the, dark, the darkest orange is basically the level of pollution and PM2.5 concentrations, so basically pollutants, that are some of the highest in the world, significantly higher than the World Health Organization's guidelines. 
So this clearly would be an environmental concern, but also, of course, it's a health concern. And it also matters when it comes to productivity and it has an economic cost um, as well. I can't talk about the Middle East without talking about water because the GCC, the Gulf states, are significantly challenged when it comes to fresh water. There's a huge shortage. Uh, a lot of the water that they use comes from desalinating the seawater, and they have some of the world's largest desalination programs. But at the same time, they have some of the most unique coastal and marine environments. And part of the problem with this is that the, the increase of the climate change and increase of global temperature also affects this acidity of the water, it affects the ecosystems, it affects the quality of the coastal and marine environment, but also with desalination, there's a lot of dumping of extra chemicals sometimes, as well as saline solutions back into the water, which also affects it. So this has a significant, really future-term environmental challenge. And this matters, the environment matters, for multiple reasons. The MENA region is one of the most vulnerable to climate change. Also, the rise in temperature means that we will over time require more energy inputs for the same amount of demand that we have. So that means lower energy efficiency, but also the, the, there's increasing demand purely because the populations are growing. And that will in turn means increase demand and pressure on the water resources and the other different resources that are available. There's also, um, not just for desalination, which is expected to go by 14-fold, but also the cooling requirements. It also has an economic cost. I did mention very briefly effects on health and productivity and what that means with rising health costs and fiscal costs, but it also affects GDP. And just as an example, uh, this is data from the World Bank that says the expected economic losses from just climate-related water scarcity is between 6 to 14% loss of GDP between now and mid-century. So if you compound that effect over the different sources of the, where the environment is challenged, we can expect the cost to be very high at various different levels. And you can see why the challenge of the environment is really serious. Now we get to maybe kind of showing you a little bit more of these visions that I mentioned earlier and where or if the environment fits in them. So I did mention those uh, visions. I'll, I'll mention them quite briefly. What I want to mention here in the section, I'll, I'm not going to go over the visions in detail. I'm just going to give you a brief idea of what language they use and where the role of environment in them. And I must say that they're aligned with uh, sustainable development goals of the United Nations. And if you look at the sustainable development goals, of which there are 17, there are a few that mention the environment. So the environment comes into you know, the climate, like below water on land, but also in things like sustainable cities, as well as clean water as well. So in the goals and the SDGs, environment is featured across multiple goals. In the visions, however, the environment comes usually as one element or one pillar. And they, uh, most of the I guess the environmental regulatory framework comes not so much from the visions, but really from the different ministries that exist that uh, concern or, or have the mandate of taking care of anything uh, environment related. But here, I just want to give you a couple of examples. This is on the left-hand side, Vision Ru'ya 2021, Vision 2021 from the UAE. You see the different priorities have, uh, for example, preserving the identity, safe and fair judiciary, knowledge, economy, 
education and healthcare, and only one over here, which comes to sustainable environment and infrastructure. Look at the one on the right, there is Qatar, and Qatar also has mostly social human development and economic development, and then the environment and sustainability comes as one pillar. Here's an example of if you look at, if we read the text of the visions, there is a bit, usually a paragraph or so on the environment. And here's an example from Vision 2030 for Saudi Arabia, where it says the following. It says, achieving environmental sustainability, this is a goal, and they want to do that by preserving our environment and natural resources. Uh, so it does mention environment and natural resources. And then the preservation is part of a responsibility for future generations. It mentions efficiency of waste management, recycling projects, and uh, fighting pollution and desertification. And then it also talks about water. And then finally, of course, renewable water, which basically means taking renewable energy and using that to desalinate the water. And then the final bit here, which I didn't mention or I didn't color in, in blue or green, uh, which is basically protecting beaches and natural reserves and islands, etc. So there is really a framework, even though it's a bit vague, but there is some element of the environment that is mentioned. If we really look deep and then read them one by one, we find that the visions have no reference to climate change, except for Oman. They do not mention reducing carbon footprint. There's very limited referencing to pollution, and the example from Saudi Arabia that I mentioned is one. Also, they're really more framed in terms of even the environment. It's more framed in terms of how it suits and supports the national economy and supporting and or alleviating, I should say, social and economic concerns. And there's also a emphasis, which seems, I believe, is really the main driver in a lot of the projects that have followed these visions, is this big emphasis on really uh, having great economies, great economies, not just in oil and gas anymore, but also being gateways for trade, finance, tourism, and really important links to the rest of the world. And this positioning is very clear, and I'll show you in a little bit, really kind of uh, being positioned as really leaders, and not just regionally, but also globally. And that really seems to be the drive of why the visions are created and why the economic diversification plans are really what, what they're trying to achieve. Uh, Oman is the one that, Oman's vision, I should say, is the one that refers the most to the environment. And because of that, I want to give you examples of how the environment is listed in the Omani vision. Again, the environments and natural resources specifically are listed as a national priority. Uh, mostly what really matters is, again, we see the wording of support the domestic economy, the national economy. And there is a balance, of course, between what the environment needs as well as the different social and socioeconomic needs. Uh, what is really interesting about this is that it mentions they want to aim, the, the, the last arrow, the last bullet point, ultimately the aim is to gradually move towards the use of raw materials and manufacturing goods instead of exporting them as is. What that means is instead of exporting natural resources, they want to use them in manufacturing and export the manufacturing. So again, the use of the raw materials is not being to preserve it, so to speak, and that is preserving the environment, but really using it for diversification purposes and producing or exporting other goods, manufacturing in this case, other than oil and gas. Here's another example from the UAE. The reason I, I thought it would be good to mention the UAE because... The UAE has perhaps been a leader across the GCC states in, in trying to preserve the environment and having more 
carbon-friendly, let me say, uh, projects before the other states. In this case, in the UAE, again, there is an importance of protecting the the reputation uh, and ensuring that the state or the government country is attractive to business and investment. So you can see, again, we're looking at what how we as a country look to the outside world. There is a reference to in the preface to nurturing and sustainable environment, but a lot of this is really linked to family cohesion values rather than the actual environmental uh, resources. And then there's also a lot of link with preserving the, the natural environment to international initiatives. So it gives the impression that the, the target isn't necessarily protecting the domestic resources to the point that they should be, but really how do we meet international initiatives and uh, kind of appear to be conscientious from a global perspective. So this is another example from the Saudi Arabian region. And here you can see, I know it's probably very small, maybe some of you cannot see them, but among the various different targets, and I did mention earlier that the environment was listed in the Saudi vision, Part of these um, goals that they aim to achieve, for example, number one, to rise from our current position of 25 top 10 countries on the global competitiveness index. So a lot of the language, and this is an example of the language that's written around the visions, and then obviously the projects that have been achieved or after as a result of the visions. A lot of the language is kind of basically centering around this achieving a status as one of the largest economies of the world, one of the most competitive, but it also has things like, you know, increasing competitiveness, localization of energy production and management, expanding the role of the oil and gas industry, and even the oil and gas industry also still being an important part, which one would understand being an important part, even in this uh, new vision of energy uh, and economic diversification. And there's limited environmental references, but as I mentioned before, it's mostly to waste management and pollution. But a lot of the projects don't seem to be uh, achieving or targeting a lot of the issues that I mentioned earlier with the environment, whether they were high emissions, for example, or the issue of water shortages or even pollution. Again, we see another emphasis again on economic achievements and globally and how we rank at a global perspective. And here's an example for uh, from um, the bottom left-hand side from Bahrain, where Bahrain is celebrating the fourth most improved economy. And uh, with Qatar, an importance of showing or displaying excellence and sustainability at the World Cup in 2022. And then, obviously, for uh, Saudi Arabia, there's also examples of uh, Saudi Aramco's uh, strategic transformation programs and the IPO, when basically enlarging in, in of, of FDI and national transformative uh, programs. So again, we see that achieving this large-scale economy or economic achievement is really a driver in the in in the visions. I hope. Now, the the point of this this past section was really to kind of show that the role of the environment and the visions has been really limited, even though the environment has features as a a goal, but it often kind of is just part of this longer vision or idea of a sustainable uh, living without really big emphasis on improving the quality of the environment and its different resources that exist in the Gulf. However, there have been some recent developments that are very positive on the environment front. So this is, I I don't want to come across as I'm, uh, you know, this is doom and gloom, not necessarily. But part of the recent developments that I want to show, uh, because they're um, really very much important and also in the right direction that I think helps the environment and overall sustainability, 
So some of the examples, again, this is not a comprehensive list. It's just, just examples. So in the UAE, for example, there's been the Mustaf city, which um, has been the first zero carbon city in the world. And uh, this is not new. I think it's from about 2010 or so. So it's kind of been going on for, for some time. Also in the UAE, there's the Vedaka nuclear power plant. Also in an attempt to increase uh, the share of clean uh, electricity in um, the domestic economy. Another example from Saudi Arabia is the Neom City. Neom is a giga project, a billion dollars project, very massive. But the idea of just creating a whole city that is pretty much self-sustained and also very carbon uh, neutral and friendly. And there have been some projects within Neom that have been, uh, for example, a hydrogen project I'll talk about in a little bit, but a hydrogen project that also is a green hydrogen project. So producing or creating a new source of energy that is also clean and can be exported, importantly. So it hits the economic diversification target. There's, of course, also the Green Initiative, which was announced in March 2021, whereby uh, Saudi Arabia committed to planting kundalini trees in the desert. I think there's about like 1% of that that's been achieved so far. There's also about 40 billion or so to be planted also across the Middle East. Again, very positive point forward. In Kuwait, this might be... One of my favorite examples, because there has been a, a very a domestic project and aimed at uh, not really exports, but just really at improving the domestic uh, livelihood of uh, transforming a tire graveyard to a smart city. And this, this was in the news about uh, a month ago or so, with the idea of having over 20,000 houses that will be built on the city. So again, we see, uh, and, and this is obviously very important from the environmental perspective, but also the economic perspective, because tires pollute the environment, they're, um, they, when they're burned, they're really bad for pollution, etc. And also they just exist there. So what do you do with them unless you transform them to something usable and recyclable? And then finally, in Oman, there's um, been initiatives uh, for uh, cleaning and protecting natural reserves and water and ocean, which have date back, I think, from 2016 onwards, as far as I know. But it's possible that they've actually started before that. So there's some recent achievements and, and really good achievements that I that exist. Another uh, achievement, as Walter had mentioned at the very beginning, the hydrogen stuff. And I've written quite a bit on this, but I just want to give you an idea of what hydrogen is and how it fits in this. So hydrogen is, you know, we, we, it's one of the most abundant, actually the most abundant elements uh, on Earth. But hydrogen has been known to be uh, very uh, useful in energy uh, applications because it can be uh, used for, for energy itself as an energy carrier or even a storage medium. And it can be... Uh, it has various different uh, applications. And uh, importantly, because hydrogen in nature doesn't exist by itself, it exists with other elements. For example, uh, with water, it's H2O, if you remember middle school chemistry, or with, with hydrocarbons, it's with the carbon. Uh, basically, what, what that means is the hydrogen can be separated from the different elements that that we have. So that means that we can also use water, for example, to separate the hydrogen from it using green uh, renewable power. And if we use that, the renewable power through a process called electrolysis to get uh, hydrogen, that is called green hydrogen. So this is the cleanest hydrogen, if you will. But then we can also use hydrocarbons, so oil and gas and natural, uh, coal and oil and natural gas uh, to produce hydrogen, which is at the moment probably the most, about 90% of the world's hydrogen is produced this way. But then that emits a lot of uh, carbon. If we capture that carbon through 
technologies of carbon capture and sequestration and storage, then that becomes blue. What that means is we can still use hydrocarbons to get a hydrogen, a clean hydrogen, and we actually have a solution for the carbon. Because of these properties and the ability to use hydrogen in local consumption for decarbonization purposes, but also for exports, hydrogen has become really an important, has kind of been looked at as the golden solution, so to speak, for future energy needs uh, that meets the world's needs for clean energy, but also energy in general. But there's about in 2020, so about the beginning of last year, there was about 22 countries in the world that have had either established hydrogen projects or established uh, hydrogen strategies of how to develop markets and export them or use the hydrogen in domestic uh, industries. Gulf countries have been really lagging and behind, but we see them starting to catch up. So in Saudi Arabia, in 2020, I did mention the large city of Neom with this idea of producing green hydrogen, the clean hydrogen from renewable energy. But also, importantly, there was a blue ammonia cargo uh, that was shipped to Japan. Ammonia also carries nitrogen and hydrogen, so the ammonia can be then shipped to Japan, and at Japan separated uh, what we call cracked to separate the hydrogen from it. So here is an example, again, where this hydrogen opportunity is being used for the export market and not decarbonizing the domestic system. And then also Saudi Arabia did adopt a hydrogen strategy a few months ago, in about August of this year. The UAE also has had some of the largest energy projects across the region, but also it included the region's first industrial scale green hydrogen project that was uh, also announced in 2021. Oman also has a hydrogen economy strategy, as well as projects to advance the hydrogen, again, a green hydrogen project, with the idea of most of these will be targeting the export market. And then finally, in Kuwait, there has been a white paper towards a national hydrogen strategy, but without actual projects announced or a strategy uh, put forth. But again, what, what this shows is the um, the Gulf states are really catching up to kind of not just do what was in the visions of having, you know, financial centers and tourist centers, et cetera, in their economic diversification plan, but really looking at how do we join the energy transition process and use a diversification of energy as also a source of economic diversification, which from an economic perspective makes a lot of sense, of course. But the role of that in the domestic environment remains to be very little at the moment. Probably the most remarkable change that has happened related to the environment in the Gulf states is the recent historic announcements of net zero emission commitments by the UAE to achieve that, uh, to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, followed by Saudi Arabia in 2060 and Bahrain in 2060. Now, of course, there is a COP going on, and I'll be um, joining them tomorrow, as you have heard. But with the, with the COP, uh, these, like all states, this is not just the Gulf states, have had to submit new commitments, so to speak, to the UNFCCC, so with new intended nationally determined contributions, and in them committing to what they believe they will, how much the, uh, they will reduce their, their emissions by. And what's interesting in the new um, INDC's submissions is that the emphasis there is still on the role of hydrocarbons that still exist as an important role in the economy and focusing on diversifying the domestic economy as a way to reduce emissions. 
as well as using carbon capture mechanisms as well. So there really, I think, needs to be more details on how that will happen. But it sounds that there isn't this idea that is presented of having completely transformative or completely new projects to uh, save the environment, so to speak, but more on kind of just addressing emissions and diversification. Another important element to this whole carbon emissions story, uh, which is the circular carbon economy. And this is not a new idea at all, but I'm mentioning it in a separate slide because in Saudi Arabia's announcement of reducing emissions by or, or achieving carbon neutrality by 2060, a big part of the way that they will achieve that will rely on circular carbon economy. And what that means is basically ways to be able to continue to use fossil fuels and other methods that emit carbon, but then finding technologies that can capture that carbon that is emitted and then either finding different uses for it or storing it in oil wells, for example, or using it for other purposes. And the thing about this, this was adopted also with the V20 that was held in uh, Saudi Arabia last year. The thing about this is that it offers a kind of a flexible approach of, of handling a, or for different countries to really target and have a solution for carbon. But it also, as Prince Abdelaziz has said that the Green Initiative Forum, and I've mentioned the, 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 his quote here, um, there's still an emphasis on not going away from fossil fuels, but continuing to use fossil fuels in the picture. We're getting to uh, conclude now. So I just want to give you an idea of, even though I have now shown you how the environment uh, has had a limited role in the visions, and even though we have had now very recently more pro-environment or more pro-climate developments on the energy and economic diversification front, I still believe environment is discounted. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. Because remember, the environment that I'm talking about here is not just a contribution to the rest of the world in terms of what we export being green, but also how it affects the domestic environment. And I'll give very briefly a few ideas to make my point as evidence. The first one is very weak climate and decarbonization regulatory framework in these states. In across all the states, across the different domains of carbon, there's either a lack of implicit regulation or lack of regulation altogether. And sometimes when there is regulation, it can be quite inadequate. In addition, there is low research and development expenditures on low carbon energy. And this is important because the driver for the hydrogen economy that I described, as well as all the uh, circular carbon economy that I also mentioned, which can be a fantastic solution, they're really driven by improvements in, in technology. And, and there is very, uh, we're still really behind the technologies, particularly to make hydrogen and low carbon energy options price competitive with fossil fuels. Both states have historically and still do have very uh, low a share of their GDP uh, being spent on R&D development. And if you compare that to the highest countries in the world, between the highest 10 from Korea to the U.S., ranging from 4.3 to approximately 3% of GDP in the Gulf, it hasn't been exceeded 1% except potentially for the UAE in the past couple of years. And the same when it comes to green hydrogen technologies. In addition, the third reason is even though we have these massive plans, for example, to establish green hydrogen, which relies on renewables, renewable energy still remains very, very low in the Gulf states. 
there are ambitious plans as part of those visions to rely on hydrogen and uh, apologies on renewables anywhere from 15% in the case of Kuwait all the way to about 45% in UAE and Saudi. But then uh, at the moment, we saw about less than 2% on average of installed capacity being from renewables. So there is really slow development. Another reason is that we still have a slow progress on a lot of the programs within the visions that are particularly environment-driven. And here's one example, and, and this is various. Some visions are maybe ahead of others, but this is an example from Kuwait, uh, looking at the different projects that they have for the sustainable living environment pillar. And you see when it comes to the air quality and the renewable energy, they're very much behind in terms of the uh, progress achieved to meet the project completion by the date that's uh, driven, while there is, it seems to be when it comes to sewage and waste management, a bit more advancements on that front. But overall, we'll still be, they're still behind schedule. And that also leads me to this other point that the environment remains in a state of degradation. And for example, even though uh, you know, the, um, the UAE had Mustar City, which is the first carbon neutral city in the world, Dubai stands as one of the as the most polluted city in, in the Gulf. But also there are other cities across the region, Doha, Qatar, Al-Ahmadi, Riyadh, or Baghdad, they're also very polluted cities. And at the moment, even the um, greenhouse gas emissions remain very high. I admit that there seems to be improvement in the INTCs, the commitments that submitted to the UNFCCC, but still there is no real example of how that will affect the environment. And then finally, I should say another uh, challenge is the fact that there is financial constraints, and the financial constraints means less money that could support projects that help the environment. And then finally, for the final uh, challenge, which is uh, the subsidies, because if you continue to have subsidies, particularly if you have subsidies for clean energy, then what that would mean, it would reduce the existing part that could be exported, expand the part that is used domestically, but the cost of that will be obviously fiscal cost. So this will be what we call a distortion from, uh, in, in the economic literature. And that would also not necessarily achieve the best ideal use of resources that could also maximize the, the role of uh, or the protection of the environment. In, in, in summary, I guess, the, the environment has not been necessarily, despite large improvements, it hasn't been the primary motivator to date in terms of economic and energy diversification. However, I think it remains an important element that needs to be addressed particularly if we were to maximize energy and economic sustainability. Thank you very much for listening to this long talk, and I would very much love to hear your questions and discuss them. Okay, we have my colleague, Michael Willis, has been curating the questions, um, so I'm going to turn it over to him to, to bring out questions from the audience. I have a couple of questions of my own, but we do have audience questions, so I think we should give priority to those. Thank you very much, Walter, and thank you very much, Manal. We have about, I think we'll be about 10 minutes for questions, so I'll go through some of the questions here. The first one really deals with something you deal, dealt with right on your last screen, which focuses on the, the international dimension of this. And this comes from Yassin Yildirim. Thank you, Yassin, for your question. And the question is, by considering the green theory in international relations to overcome most common environmental problems in the Gulf, is relying on intra-regional collaboration amongst Gulf nations a realistic or convenient way? Or do we need more effective method like global cooperation processes with the contribution of other middle nations 
quite possibly under the supervision of the United Nations? Thank you very much for the question. I think part of the problem is a lot of the UN or international level mandates or regulation are not really compulsory, right? There is an issue of, of regulatory uh, compliance here. But I do very much believe that a lot of the uh, the region as a whole, uh, despite the, the borders of the nation state, has the same challenges. And I think they will benefit significantly if there's collaboration, uh, both in terms of uh, particularly, for example, when it comes to oceans and waters that are open you know, across the countries. I think there will be significant benefit when it comes to having or targeting that from a, a regional level. But I also believe, particularly with the point that I mentioned earlier on the low R&D point, as well as the fiscal constraints, I also think there's a, a probably uh, an opportunity for a regional collaboration, similar to what you see across Europe, but to see it across the GCC states where they pull resources together and also focus that on maybe having a, a region-wide uh, R&D center or region-wide hydrogen center, et cetera. And I, I'll, I'll stop here as I'm cognizant of other questions in, in, uh, on the list. Thank you very much, Manal. We're getting quite a few questions, but people are absolutely fascinated by the, the data that you've been putting up and whether your slides and the presentation will be available. Just to let you know that we will be making it available. A recording will be put out, both a sound recording on SoundCloud and on the YouTube channel. That will take a little while just to edit and put out. So do keep an eye on the Middle East Center social media outputs where that will come through on that. So to those of you asking about that, because there was a lot of information about absolutely fascinating information. Okay, another question. Sami Fahmi asks, you looked at the hydrogen issue and he wants to know, is the hydrogen cost competitive in the, the economies that you've been looking at tonight? An excellent question, because if it's not competitive, then it would not make sense to get into it from an economic uh, diversification perspective. So I have to say that clean hydrogen at the moment, in general, across the world, is not competitive with oil and gas and, what that, and coal. What that means is oil and gas uh, and coal are cheaper to use than green hydrogen. Having said that, though, the Gulf region compared to other regions have a comparative, a potential, I should say, potential comparative advantage in the production of both blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen from uh, fossil fuels with carbon capture and sequestration and technology, as well as a potential comparative advantage in the production of green hydrogen, which relies on renewables. And I didn't really mention uh, in, the, in the talk that renewables, even though I mentioned they're low, but the quality of the renewable resources that exist in the Gulf is among the best in the world. And also what that means is that they're able to produce some of the lowest renewable energy globally. And because of that, this will also translate particularly for green hydrogen and producing low hydrogen uh, costs that are very competitive with the rest of the world. But yet, um, there are the challenges that I mentioned in terms of the, there's not enough renewables at the moment to be used for producing green hydrogen. And for blue hydrogen, I think Saudi Aramco particularly is trying to really be the world leader in blue uh, hydrogen space. Um, and they, they do have, again, a potential comparative advantage because of their comparative advantage in the hydrocarbon space. But for that to compete with fossil fuels and completely replace them, I think we need to either see carbon taxes, for example, or some sort of a different structure in, in the change. Uh, sorry, a, cha a structural change in the price of energy sources. Thank you very much, Manal. And next, a, a question coming from Becky Evans, who comes from Ursinus College. I hope I'm pronouncing that. And uh, Ursinus. Ursinus, I beg you. Thank you very much. 
Yeah. Well, as you can gather, Manal knows that because she's an alumnus of that college and uh, Becky is very proud to claim you as such. So very pleased to have a question there. And Becky's question is, does the commitment to low carbon energy sources and environmental sustainability depend on the willingness of individual leaders of GCC countries to embrace such approach? Does domestic and or global public opinion play an influential role? So in other words, what are going to be the drivers of change internationally, or do we have to rely on the leaders within the states themselves? Greetings from Oxford, or Sinus, and um, hello to Becky, and thanks for the question. Yes, actually, this is a very important question because it does go into the point of the drive or the motivation for uh, low carbon technologies. I think if you listen, for example, to the Saudi announcement, there has been a lot of talk about uh, or use of language like we want to be leading uh, in the world. We want to be known for being the leaders in, in climate technologies and, and or CC, um, uh, circular carbon economy. So there's definitely this emphasis or interest of moving, joining really the, the, the energy transition ship, which has started to sail already uh, and kind of joining that from being not only oil and gas uh, leaders, but to energy transition leaders, and also the reputation. And this is really came across very vividly uh, in the past month or so with the uh, net zero emission targets. What's been really interesting in that is also this, um, it's not just a reputation, I think that's important, but this position as global leaders. And also another thing that's interesting in terms of the part of the question is that in the Gulf, the individual leaders tend to be the decision makers are obviously very important in, in achieving a lot of the change. Um, so I think they, uh, if a lot of the change has to come from the top down, we see Kuwait, for example, where the parliament has more of a prominent role being really lagging in terms of achieving change. So I think it's the interest of both, the reputational interest leading the world and being you know, the global leader in this, as well as the reputation for sure. Thank you. Now, a couple of questions that, that sort of look at very similar themes about to what extent, what is the, the moves that have been made on the environmental issue are really about an image to the external world. We have Matteo Lagrenzi, very good friend of the center, former graduate of the center, who asked, are the sort of measures being introduced, what you could call ornamental environmentalism? And we have Hassan Al-Khodja, who says, are the plans for carbon neutrality really just to appease global calls for climate change? So is it really about maintaining an external image or is there something more there? I mean, you've answered that a little bit, but I'd like, it'd be nice to hear something very direct on this. Okay, something very direct. I think what's been really interesting is the Gulf states have been considered have been fighting, so to speak, to preserve the role of fossil fuels in, in climate negotiations uh, and in UNFCCC circles, etc. And some have even called them trying to obstruct, so to speak, climate negotiations. And we'll really see a 180 degree change in this year where I think they're clearly realizing the world is moving towards an energy transition sphere. The world is really moving towards less fossil fuel consumption and more uh, green. So let's join that phase. I think a big part of it then, um, one could argue that a lot of the projects that have been passed for sure are parts, and this is actually the, the theme of my talk, is it's not really driven by the domestic interest of protecting the environment domestically, but really protecting this leading role as leading in the energy sphere. And now energy is inseparable from climate. So to be in leading in the energy sphere, you have to be a leading in the 
and the climate sphere as well. So there's definitely part of that, but you can also read in the subtext when things say, for example, we will continue to use fossil fuels. There's this, uh, I think, point that we, uh, well, the Gulf states will join the climate and be uh, not obstructionist anymore, but will drive reduction in emissions, for example, and improvement of the climate conditions. But at the same time, it's going to be on their own terms of what they want to achieve, right? So one could also then there say that maybe some of the uh, projects that the programs are really an ornament, as, as Matteo had said. And I, I think there's two points to this question, or two points to my answer, I should say. One is I think there's definitely more, uh, there has to be significant change to the way energy has been consumed, to the way the economy has been structured, and also to a lot of the projects that exist. There really requires significant changes for that to achieve the climate targets that these countries have made. And there, could, one could also argue, are these projects really just an ornament? But in their defense, we've yet to see the, the proof of the pudding, so to speak. We've yet to see what will happen in 2030 uh, or 2025, for that matter. Will the countries be on target? I think even if they are a bit of an ornamental facade, we, we do see improvement on the climate front. So it, even if their motivation isn't necessarily protecting the environment, but to appease the rest of the world vision, they will still help the environment. But I don't think that would be the most productive for the environment, um, obviously, and most efficient for maximizing sustainability. I hope Thank that you. was direct enough for your purposes. Yes, it was. Thank you very much. <laughs> I hope it was. Uh, I'm sure our audience appreciated that. Thank you. Perhaps this will be our, our last question, and it, it addresses something that's brought up in other countries as a way of dealing with environmental issue, is the issue of, of food, particularly food waste and changing um, patterns of consumption, particularly reducing meat consumption. Has this had any presence at all in the countries that uh, you, you've been looking at? I suspect I know the answer to that, but I'd be interested to hear. Not that I know of, and there are, you know, the food consumption baskets, for example, I think parts of the additions of that have also included meat products. And the, the thing with, the, with food that is really important is the fact that most of the food consumed in Gulf states is actually imported, right? It is not all domestically grown. And so then there is um, not just a level, at least if we talk from an environmental, let's say emissions, I think the question was on emissions level, the emissions from the food then is not just the fact that whatever comes from the meat consumption, but also the transportation of that and securing the imports into the country. So that, to my knowledge, is definitely not, hasn't been something that's been uh, addressed. But also remember, these states, as I mentioned, are welfare states. Even subsidy reform has been very contentious. So also reforming or telling people, now we're going to give you less support, welfare, but also you should start changing your, your behavioral patterns when it comes to food, I think will be quite shocking in an environmental perspective. But there are very small, not within the visions, but there are small groups within uh, grassroots efforts, so to speak, that talk about, for example, sustaining the fish that comes out of the ocean because it's not sustainable and those kind of efforts, but nothing at a, at a vision level as far as I know. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we're rapidly approaching the end of our time. So we haven't, haven't been able to answer all the questions, but I'll hand you back to Walter. Okay, yes, I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to ask my question, but we have indeed gone to the end. So on behalf of the Middle East Center and on behalf of our very lively and inquisitive audience, I want to thank you, Manal, for an excellent presentation. My absolute pleasure. It's been wonderful to be with all of you and many thanks for the audience and the Q&A and for hosting me today.